The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, July 17th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So remember a couple weeks ago, I came up with Huzzah, which is the more positive version of the Jewish Anti-Defamation League. You don't? You're not a completist? All right, let me take you back to the Wayback Machine. But by the way, I'm going to give the ADL some advice. Why are you always calling yourself the ADL? Don't you want to be more proactive, forward-looking? Why not the Jewish Commendation League? The Jewish Exaltation League? You know, when someone says something nice about the Jews, you could call yourself, here's a good one, the Hebraic Union of Zestfulness, Zeal, and Harmony. Huzzah! Huzzah, if it existed, would certainly be hyping this. How Americans Feel About Religious Groups, it came out from Pew today, and they asked different Americans what religions, and also lack of religions like atheism, which groups are you most warm towards? And guess who won? The Jews. So what Pew did was they set up a scale, like a thermometer, and they said, ranging from zero to 100, how warm are your feelings towards the Jews, the Catholics, the Christians? Now, maybe this gets into dicey territory, right? Wait, if I give the evangelicals a 98, isn't it too hot for them? You know, is that I'd hate to boil the Mormons if I choose too high. I mean, did they say Celsius? Did they say Fahrenheit? It's hard to know what they say. But anyway, Americans are warmer towards the Jews than any religion. Jews came in at a 63 or higher. Now, you know, so Catholics were 62 and evangelical Christians 61. So you're saying to yourself, okay, they won, but only by one or two. But think about this. So the groups, of course, will count them themselves as the highest or they like themselves the most, right? So Catholics rate Catholics as the highest or say they have the warmest feelings towards Catholics. But remember, Catholics are 20% of the people that Pew surveyed. You know, 20% of Americans are Catholics, roughly. And evangelical Christians, who gave the highest scores to evangelical Christians, are 32% of the sample. So when you see how the groups rated each other, so evangelicals rated Jews at 69. The evangelicals love the Jews. Sure, the evangelicals rated evangelicals at 82, but a big win for the Jews. But then I was going even deeper into the numbers. First of all, the idea of the self-hating Jew. Is it true? No. Jews rate themselves really quite highly. Then, I found this fascinating. The atheists. It turns out that 82% of atheists rate atheists warmly. Now, this is one of the highest numbers, but how can it not be 100%? What kind of atheist is like, yeah, I don't believe in God, but all those other non-believers really get to me. And I was thinking of this, and then Adam Carolla has, well, his version of a spiel where he says he's an atheist, but one of the reasons he's an atheist is he just doesn't want to bother with doctrine. And a lot of atheists have become essentially doctrinaire. They want to tell you their opinions on atheism. He wants to add to that too. So I guess he's among the 18% of atheists who aren't too hot on atheists. So on the show today, we're going to be talking about a very serious issue a death in the family. The Archie family, the titular character, is biting one, but we're going to get inside the hows and whys with the guy who hosts the Archie podcast. I'll be spilling a little bit later on, but first, muons. Ever hear of them? Now you will. It's 
it's been over three years since the meltdown of the Fukushima reactor in Japan. Researchers have not been able since then to get inside. That's obvious. They haven't even been able to drop a camera inside. Things are so unstable and dangerous that that's not even possible. But there is a way, maybe, to see what's happening inside there. And it's called muon tomography. Muons, M-U-O-N, but pronounced muons, could be the answer. What are muons? Ben Lilly, who is an ex-physicist and the co-founder of the Story Collider, where people tell stories of science is here. Let's talk muons. Hello, Ben. Hello. So I guess I got to find out about muons and I got to find out about tomography. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's start with muons. What's a muon? (laughs) Uh, It's one of the weirdest things out there. So um, it's exactly like an electron, but bigger. Right. And this floored people. Back in the early 1900s, Everyone was like, we've got matter figured out. There's protons and there's neutrons and there's electrons. Period. And that's awesome. Mm-hmm. It, it's everything. And then they started studying these things called cosmic rays, which is the Earth is getting hit by stuff from out in the universe all the time. They studied them in these really cool things called cloud chambers, where like particles streak through it and make little artificial clouds. They're awesome. And uh, you can look at them and you can see, oh, that's an electron and that's a proton. And they're looking at it and they see this thing and they're like... That looks exactly like an electron, but it's 200 times heavier. And there was a collective moment in the physics world where everyone just went, what the fuck? And that took the lid off. And all of a sudden, people were discovering hundreds of particles. Okay. And that changed everything. But so that what eventually it settled down. And what they realized was going on is there's normal matter. And it wasn't protons and neutrons. It turns out they're made out of quarks. Mm-hmm. And you can rearrange those in a bunch of other stuff. But the fundamental particles, there's quarks, up quarks, down quarks, and then electrons... And then they all get repeated for some reason. So there's a heavier version of an up quark called a charm quark. There's a heavier version of a down quark called a strange quark, because names are great. And uh, there's a heavier version of the electron called the muon. Um, And then it turns out they do it again. There's a whole third generation. So there's something heavier than a muon? Heavier than a muon. It's called a tau. It's not as useful because it doesn't live as long. um, So you won't hear about it as much. But for some reason, there's just three copies uh, of every single fundamental particle. So we've discovered these things. How does that help us in this idea of muon tomography? Maybe this is where you tell me what tomography is. So, yeah, you're right. You want to look inside Fukushima, and you can't because all the radiation, if you open it up, you're going to let stuff out. Bad news. And you can't go in. So what you want to do is find a way to, to look inside. You'd like to x-ray it, right? Yeah. You can't send x-rays through because the whole thing's surrounded by a big thing of concrete, so nothing they, they don't get through. So what you do is you use this technique, and I love the fact this technique was pioneered by uh, a guy named Louis Alvarez, who was the same guy who discovered that a meteor is why the dinosaurs went extinct. Really? Yes. This guy's got range. He, not only that, he also was... jammed um, with Herbie Hancock on Rocket. <laughs> he was in World War II. His assignment was to uh, sit in the plane that followed the Enola Gay and measure the shockwave from the atomic bomb. This wow. guy's all over the place. But so after that, he studied cosmic rays, these things that are bombarding the Earth. Sometimes the cosmic rays will come in, they'll hit some atom in the atmosphere and shatter it and send a spray of all kinds of things, including muons. The muons don't last very long. They last a millionth of a second, tiny little bit of time, but it's long enough that they can travel a long distance if they're going at the speed of light. Okay. And so what happens is they get produced from these cosmic rays and they come streaming through the atmosphere. And he's like, you know what happens? Because they actually go through most material. Every once in a while, they'll hit something. But so they're constantly streaming through this material. And he's like, we can use that like an X-ray. So think about how an X-ray works, right? You have like your arm, right? And they send a bunch of X-rays through it. And X-rays mostly just go through stuff. So they go straight through your flesh. 
But where it's denser, a few more of them get absorbed. So when they hit the bone, some more of them get absorbed. And you can see that difference when you expose it. And he's like, you know what? We could do the same thing, like the next ray, except with the Great Pyramid at Giza and look for secret chambers. Wow. And so what they did is they set up a muon detector outside the Great Pyramid, counted the muons that came through at different angles to look and see, is there a secret chamber inside? Unfortunately, the answer is no. But um, doesn't, that's do, where the Doesn't negate from. the science. No. Or what I was thinking of in the physical world, you know these things? I have a picture of it up. Pin art. Those, oh, yeah, exactly. Right? right? So yes. these, are, these are these things where um, there's like a thousand little pins, and if you put your hand there, it makes an impression of the yeah. hand, or you put your face there. Essentially, think of these things as muons. They'll register that something is there, and then they'll register that's not, and they'll give you an image afterwards. Basically, that's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So I get it now. Every time you try describing these things, you're doing layers of approximation. So what actually happens is the muons get deflected a little bit, and they look at how much their trajectory has changed. So what do you think they're looking for? What could they find that would help them clean it up? My understanding, this is, this is now getting outside... Um, how muons work. <laughs> my, my expertise. But from reading the, the news reports, um, they have these machines that can help them clean it up. But they have to basically custom build them because you don't have an off-the-shelf nuclear cleanup machine. Got it. Got it. But custom building isn't terribly helpful unless you know the shape of the thing you're trying to extract. Right. So what they want to do is figure out, okay, is this thing blob-shaped tilting to the right... Or is it blob-shaped with a cone? You know, whatever, whatever it's melted into. Because the reason they don't know what it looks like is when the meltdown happened, it melted. Yeah. And so the you... shape of the room beforehand is different from exactly. the shape of the room now. So is this kind of, this is a one-off application or can muons and muon tomography, let's hope there aren't too many meltdowns. Mm-hmm. What else could it be used for? Uh, well, any other great pyramids you got. Um, <laughs> no, um... Actually, it, it's used all the time right now as uh, an anti-terrorism device because you can use a simpler version of this thing to look for uranium in shipping containers. Mm-hmm. And they actually do this. Yeah. So they have these devices at shipping centers, and they just do a quick scan, make sure there's no uranium being illegally shipped through, through various ports. I actually got an answer. This is one of those <laughs> where we started. Like, I wonder how the hell that works. I totally got an answer. That was great. Ben Lilly has a background in physics, and he's also the co-founder of the Story Collider, people telling stories of science. That was a great story of science, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, I wanted to mention Slate Plus, specifically a new podcast available to Slate Plus members. It's Orange is the New Black. We're inviting you to binge watch with us. Our new limited edition podcast series, available exclusively for Slate Plus members, takes a deeper look at the show's entertaining second season through the lenses of economics, LGBT issues, and more. The latest conversations are between Slate's TV critic Willa Paskin and experts like Adam Davidson of NPR's Planet Money and Dan Savage of Savage Love. So sign up for Slate Plus, and the URL again is slate.com slash gist plus. Yes, a gisty way of signing up for Slate Plus. You can start listening immediately. Archie, the comic book character Archie, Riverdale's perpetually innocent ginger-haired teen, has been around for over 70 years. And now he's gonna die. Everything's Archie. Archie's here. 
Well, one version of Archie, the one in the Life with Archie series, which is a more serious take on Archie, Betty, Veronica, and Jughead. Yeah, a more serious take on Jughead. That Archie has died. He's been assassinated, in fact, after taking a bullet for Riverdale's first openly gay character who's an elected official. Those words seem really weird coming out of my mouth. But here to discuss, to bargain with, rage, deny, grow despondent over, and we hope eventually accept Archie's death, is Jonathan Merrifield. He is the host and founder of the Riverdale podcast. How are you, Jonathan? Hello. Uh, I'm great. Great to be here. Absolutely. So first of all, before we get to this, I think we do have to say, when we say Archie is going to die, there are a lot of iterations of Archie. And I just, I don't mean just uh, TV shows and the old pop group. Archie Comics has like a bunch of different titles with a bunch of different realities, right? Most notably, uh, the one we're talking about today is Life with Archie. And so is Life with Archie sort of the main title? The book in which this storyline takes place, the quote-unquote death of Archie, is a book called Life with Archie. So the premise is that in the front half of the book, each month, you get a 20-page adventure of what would happen if Archie had married Veronica, mm-hmm. and that continuing story. In the back half of the book every month, you get a 20-page story of what would happen if Archie had married Betty, and the adventures moving forward from there. So the death of Archie, are you telling me that will only take place in one of the alternative timelines of this particular comic? That is the genius and the craziness of this endeavor, is that the writer, Paul Kupperberg, uh, and the artists on this particular issue have sort of merged the timelines for this one issue, this one last issue. And so Archie, husband of Betty, and Archie, husband of Veronica, both Archies are going to buy it. I was really confused as to how they were going to do it, but what he's done is basically within the narrative of the story, he has drawn out all of the, uh, all of the similarities and basically written a comic that could exist in either of those universes huh. in which uh, Archie is shot and killed. Now, I don't really know anyone who reads Archie. I would imagine the appeal of Archie, and you fill me in on what this is, has something to do with nostalgia and a bygone era and the idea of an Americana that never changes. So tell me if I'm right or wrong on that. And then I want to ask you how that leads to this comic book, which seems antithetical to all the uh, adjectives I just listed. My real fandom of Archie comics is rooted in my childhood love of Archie comics, but was really cemented by just the crazy decisions that they've made in the last five to six years, um, that they necessarily haven't necessarily moved away from the basic pillars of what the comics are about. And the comic books are, are still about friendship, and they're still about inclusion and you know small-town values and stuff. But the stories that they're telling are bonkers. Uh-huh. They are fantastic. Um, so for me, you know, talking about Archie Comics week in and week out, It's really uh, a question of what are they going to do next? What are they going to throw at the wall to see if it sticks? Is it sort of like if a soap opera was taken over by a guy who's won Emmys for being a showrunner of legit drama series, and let's see what happens? It could be. I I think of it a little more as like if you took the cast of Peanuts and put them in a soap opera. Right. Like if you took these characters that are really uh, basic fundamental archetypes this is the one who eats a lot, this is the nice guy, this is the bad guy, this is the rich girl, this is the, you know, helpful, kind, sweet girl. Like, all of these characters that you can get in a second, you can look at them and you know who they are, 
and then putting them in a situation where they're dealing with infidelity in their marriage, or <laughs> they're dealing with a friend who has cancer, or their gay friend is getting married. Yeah. It's awesome. That is cool as you describe it. So what happened, what, what happened to Moose in this uh, line of comics? Okay. Uh, in one timeline, he is the uh, custodian, you know, upkeeper of Riverdale High. Uh-huh. And in the other side of the book, he is the mayor of Riverdale. <laughs> what kind of mayor is he? He is, uh, you know, roll your sleeves up and stay late. Yeah. And uh, it's going to take, you know, it's going to take me a little bit longer to understand the issues than it would the normal guy. So I'm going to put in the extra time. He's that kind of guy. Oh, that's awesome. And what's Reggie like in this in this title? In one, he is. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's just sort of a swap with Archie. In one, he's uh, dating Veronica, and the other one, he's dating Betty. Uh huh. Is he a jerk in both? Uh, no, he is. Uh, <laughs> are you and now among, I'm going to get you, my timelines. Are you among those who think that Reggie is classically misunderstood? No, I think that Reggie is a is the perfect like agent of chaos. Ah. I think without Reggie, there's a lot of stories you can't tell. He is just the perfect monkey wrench in the works of any any story. Yeah, I get it. He's like the spider god of a Nazi legend. I never thought of it like that. <laughs> And what's the and what about a Jughead? In one, he is having a baby with Midge, uh-huh. Moose's former girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, and in the other, he is marrying Ethel. Uh, I forgot who Ethel was. Who's Ethel? Ethel is formerly known as Big Ethel. Oh, okay. <laughs> now um, I remember. Who, who is now, I think, properly called just Ethel. Yeah, yeah. Do you worry, you know, the death of Superman, the death of Captain America in comic books that's seen as a somewhat tired trope, a desperate play, the media pays attention. Of course, they always go back and these characters never really stay dead. What's going to be the deal with Archie, do you think? This is the culmination of a great storyline that really gives you, you know, angles on these characters that you never thought you'd see. You know, you never thought you'd see Cheryl Blossom with cancer. You never thought you'd see the death of Miss Grundy. You never thought you'd see uh, Mr. Weatherby find love. It's just been this opportunity to see these characters in a completely different light and really explore their character traits uh, and see, you know, what they would do. And it's always been handled very smartly. And, uh, you know, here with the death of Archie, I see it as a fun opportunity to see what would happen, what is going to happen when, uh, when Archie's gone. I think it's a it's a great opportunity to tell a story that I never thought we'd see. Wow. Riverdale podcast impresario, Jonathan Merrifield. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. Warning, there is some cartoon violence to come. As we send it to breaking news, Riverdale Action News has been bringing you team coverage of the tragic death of Archie Andrews. Officials are still trying to piece together the troubling events that ended the young Ginger's life. 
Psychology experts cannot confirm what, if any, role was played by the fact that Mr. Andrews had a reported 17 different personalities. At this time, officials are also investigating a mysterious figure known as Jughead, a.k.a. the Yellow Jugheaded King, so named for his headgear and the central role he may have played in at least a dozen unsolved murders. Jughead is said to be a member of the Sovereign Rights Movement, and today authorities are scouring his social media footprint, including a Facebook page said to be rife with anti-government rhetoric and links to some of the less peppy BuzzFeed listicles. Stymieing first responders were the details left out of the 911 call to Riverdale 911. We have the tape here. 911. Oh my god. He's been shot. Archie, he's been shot. Ma'am, ma'am, I'm going to need you to calm down. Tell me where he was shot. Right in the gut. Ma'am, I mean the location. 234 Main Street in Riverdale. Right in Riverdale. Which Riverdale? Riverdale! Which Riverdale? Where is Riverdale? Ma'am, you never said which state Riverdale is in. Chilling, confusing words. But of course, there is other news to update you on. Let's throw it to Sam at the news desk. Thank you, Jim. Today, nine-year-old Linus Van Pelt of the 900 block of Chicago Avenue South was attacked and mauled by a rabid dog. The dog, a beagle, was displaying erratic behavior, including hallucinations involving a Sopwith camel. The dog's owner, one Charles Brown, has reportedly put the diseased beast down with a single bullet to the head. Five-year-old Linus is said to be recovering. A family spokeswoman says the physical injuries will heal, but the psychological wounds may take longer, adding, the psychologist is in five cents. In international news, crowds in the remote desert kingdom of Id, long-suffering under the rule of a despotic tyrant, have overthrown their oppressive leader in a bloody coup. The king and his top advisor, a wizard, were beheaded in the main square. ISIS, the Islamic State in Id and Syria, is said to have seized power. And a gruesome murder-suicide pack rocked downtown as the bodies of Leroy and Loretta Lockhorn were discovered in a badly decomposed state by their drunken neighbor, a Mr. Andrew Cap, Said friends of the couple, sure, they always fought. I mean, they were the lock horns. They locked horns, you know. But no one thought it would come to this. A local cat, a tabby named Garfield, had snuck into the apartment and was apparently, and this detail may disturb some viewers, was apparently feasting on the entrails of the lock horns. And it was revealed today that Mallard Fillmore is supposed to be funny. Who knew? Back to you at the anchor desk, Jim. Thanks, Sam. Recapping our top news, Archie Andrews is dead. Police are searching for a suspect described as armed and jug-headed. Up next, local clergymen discuss where Archie's soul may go and if he may get to play with Casper. Coming up after the break, funeral services and last week's gruesome workplace shooting. Let us remember Dilbert for his years of service to the company, not for the rage that consumed him. More questions than answers. We'll have details after this. My God, that was dark, but it's also the end of today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcasts and also Kathy's ultra-feminist foil and best friend. Andy Bowers is not only executive producer of Slate Podcasts, he did lose a little bit of his childhood today by editing that spiel. You can subscribe in iTunes and give us a review. 
Listen in Stitcher. Listen in SoundCloud. Listen in TuneIn. Listen inside or outside. Sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We are on facebook.com slash slate gist. I've posted several Pew surveys on which religions are the most popular there. You can email us at the gist at slate.com. Beetle Bailey is the kindest, bravest, warmest, most wonderful human being I have ever known in my life. And thanks for listening.